G'day everybody, Matt Ellis with you for the latest edition of the Cricket Library podcast and a very special treat for us today. We get to hear the story of a man who's organised a game of cricket on Mount Everest. He's also written a book about it, which we'll tell you more about as we get into the conversation. Currently though, he is growing the game of cricket in Japan. A very interesting story, one that will inspire you. So it's time to sit back, relax and enjoy the Alan Kerr story on the Cricket Library podcast. It's a very warm welcome to the Cricket Library podcast. Alan Kerr, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome, Matt. Good to be here. Happy to, to be on the Cricket Library. Um, yeah, it's nice to have a warm welcome because it's not that warm in Japan right now. Winter is very much upon us. Oh, it's very warm down here in Australia and uh, a great opportunity for us to to dive into the world of cricket in Japan. But before we get to that, I'd really love to know the origins of your passion for cricket. What What is it about cricket that, that drew you in and, and keeps you in? Yeah, it's uh, not the easiest one to answer, I guess. I think, um, you know, I grew up, you know, in the UK and um, following test matches on, on the radio in the days before Sky, you know, watching. I remember when I was a, a uni student, we'd, we'd follow whole test matches on Teletext. Oh, um, wow. You know, in, in the days before any kind of live commentary, sitting there waiting for the score to stick over. Um, I think just the fact that, you know, for me, test cricket um, was something that you could go away from and come back to later in the day and it's still going on. You could, it was like reading a novel, you know, it was like a big book that you could enjoy and get into. Um, I think that's kind of what drew me in. Um, it certainly had nothing to do with my playing ability. It was a fairly, fairly average leg spinner in my, in my youth. Um, oh, I'm going to love you if you're really... a leggy. We're, we're going to get on really well. <laughs> Excellent. Glad to hear that. Um, yeah, what kept me in, I, I guess the, the unique thing about cricket and this is something that I've discussed with some of my colleagues here a bit, is that you get more time with your teammates than in any other sport. Yeah. So what I mean by that is, you know, when you're you're off the field, but you're still part of the game, you know, you're sitting watching, but you're just sat with your, your mates, and you really get to know people, and you really get to um, sort of understand what makes them tick, learn about their background, and, and you build friendships and relationships that, are very different, I think, to other sports where you might just be in the dressing room beforehand, get changed, a bit of banter, go and play the game. And yeah, you might go to the pub afterwards. Cricket has that too. You know, but cricket has this, you know, where even if you're playing social cricket, you might be playing on a 35-over game on a Sunday afternoon. You know, you're still spending a considerable amount of time with the nine guys who aren't batting. Mm. You know, they're all sat there having chats. And, and I think that's what makes it so special. Um, and it helps you really to build that, um, what's the word I'm looking for, that sort of allegiance, that kind of um, grouping with people, that you have a bond, that you understand that sport is about more than what just ha- is happening on the field. Mm. Yeah, there's definitely that deep connection piece uh, in and around the game that, you're right. You, you you don't get it in a in a football game. You, you're on the field together for ninety minutes. You might share the change rooms for a little bit before the game, a little bit after the game. But uh, cricket goes for hours in some instances, and um, 
depending on how well you're playing, you, you could be out first ball of the day. Uh, and you, you, you're still... Or, or batting at 11. Yeah. Or, I think, yeah. Or, or either of those, you're still technically playing cricket, um, which is mm. great, which, which is what I love about the game as well. Um, t- tell us a little bit about um, your travels. You, you're, you're a very well-travelled kind of person. Um even to the point where you, you organise the game of cricket on Mount Everest. I, I'd love to hear a little bit about the backstory to that and, and how that all unfolded. Yeah, well, it, it very much leads into what I was just saying. I mean, the, the second part of my answer to, to why I, I'm still involved in cricket really is, is the place that's taken me. It's allowed me to travel to some pretty pretty funky places and, and do some cool things and, and meet some great people through that. Um, the Everest test took place in 2009. Um, it was an idea of a, a friend of mine, a guy called Richard Kirtley, who'd been trekking in the Himalayas, and he'd um, come across this bit of land, which, which turned out it was the original Everest base camp, where they started the first climb from in the 50s with Hillary and Tenzing. Yep. Summited for the first time, and he came back with this idea of trying to play a game of cricket up there. And the plan was to try and get our social cricket club into the Guinness Book of Records. Our cricket club was called the Drovers. They're just a, a nomadic village team in England. It was really created as a, a way to keep a group of mates together after we finished university. Mm-hmm. You know, what tends to happen from particularly in the UK, people come from all over to go to the university and then once those three years, four years are finished, they all disperse back to where they came from. But we had this cricket club, which um, was purely a, a cricket club in name. We didn't have a home ground or anything, but it was a reason for people to come back into the city, meet up, play on cricket and, and you know, socialise afterwards. And it was certainly much more about socialising than about the cricket. Um, but um, as, as time wore on, the group grew. It wasn't just people from uni. It was people brought in other friends from school or whatever. And, and you suddenly had, you know, for me particularly, I had you know friends of mine who I was, I'd been, been at school with for five, six, seven years were suddenly really good friends with guys I'd been at uni with. So kind of brought this whole group of people together. and. The the Everest test was sort of the end, got uh, the end end of that in in a way. It was like the culmination in that we took fifty people up to Mount Everest. Oh um, wow! We took uh, two squads of uh, I'd say two squads of fifteen, I think, or fourteen, maybe. I don't remember now. So about thirty odd players, and then you know umpires and a load of support staff, um, and yeah, it was a big old big old event. Um, we raised money for charity and. You know, it was nine days up and I think three days down. Um, so it was it was amazing. It was a fantastic thing to do. Um, we met some great people along the way. We raised money, like I said, for the Himalayan Trust um, and for the uh, Professional Cricket Association. Sorry, no, the Lord's Taverners. Lord's yep. Taverners back in the UK. Um, as well as we donated some to the um, Himalayan Rescue Association as well as um, the Shangri-La Cricket Academy, which is an academy run by a chap called Amir Akhtar in Nepal, who has gone on to found the Everest Premier League, which which takes place in, in Nepal every year, or did do up until recently. Um, so, yeah, to, to play a little part in, in sort of helping cricket development in Nepal was, was pretty cool. And it was around that time that I kind of got interested in um, associate world cricket. I'd been following, you know, the, the Afghan story was was pretty pretty interesting and, and unique. Um and I, I travelled a lot anyway. I actually worked for an Australian company, which I'm sure you'll know fairly well. I worked for 
flight center for yep. seven years. Um, and that, that took me around the place and uh, following that and following the Everest trip, I went to work for a, um, adventure travel company in the UK called Wild Frontiers. Yep. And through that, I went to India a few times. I went to Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iraqi Kurdistan. I went to all sorts of funky places. Um, so yeah, pretty, pretty well traveled. And, um, you know, wherever you go, you always manage to find someone playing cricket usually. So yeah. that was uh, an, added, an added bonus to my travels. Uh, tell us a little bit more about the conditions there, uh, Mount Everest. Uh, I know elite athletes do a fair bit of preparation uh, when they're playing at altitude. I- I'm imagining you guys were probably more club-level kind of cricketers. How, how did everyone f- so. physically prepare and handle uh, the conditions um, playing at altitude. Well, I guess at this point, Matt, I should point you in the direction of the excellent book that was written about the event. Oh, the here we go. Well, this is the Cricket Library <laughs> podcast, so so let's let's t- tell it tell our listeners more. Yeah, Cricket on Everest, written by a certain Alan Kerr, um, <laughs> available at all good online bookshops. I think maybe there might be you know, always a few copies still doing the rounds. Um, but yeah, the book um, does you know respect not just about a game of cricket it's about all of the prep and there was enough in there to to write a book um you know we had everyone meeting up training we were very much trying to use the tagline ordinary people doing extraordinary things mm. um it was not about elite athletes we, we could have we had the opportunity to perhaps get a couple of named cricketers or former cricketers involved to try and boost the um sort of the, the reach of the event I mean, it's, you know, Twitter was very new at the time. Facebook was still pretty new. Yep. Social media hadn't really taken off in 2008, 2009. It was still sort of finding its feet. So we were going through sort of traditional mainstream media. Um, you know, we had a journalist from ITV in the UK come come with us and they did nightly reports back to London, which was pretty cool. Um, but the training-wise, yeah, look, it was training in Battersea Park um, took place every week or you know, twice a week, I think. We had a couple of the guys in the group would run fitness sessions to help people and um, you know, I went and ran the Berlin Marathon with my sister to try and oh, wow. you know, I think running the marathon was probably for the, for the generous view of taking it, but I got around. <laughs> um, and, uh, and yeah, we all, we all kind of did different things. A couple of, couple of the girls didn't climb Kilimanjaro as a way of preparing. So, you know, the, the conditions on the mountain were, were cold, as you'd expect. Yeah. Um, and the altitude was very, it's very unpredictable. You know, you can't really guess who it's going to impact. And yeah. a lot of the things that we'd read actually was that it tends to be the fitter people who are impacted by altitudes the yeah, worst because, wow. because they go off too hard and they accelerate too quickly, they climb too quickly. Yep. And as a result, you know, their brain can't deal with the um, lack of oxygen and, and that hits them. And we did have a case of that. The first guy to go down with altitude sickness was, was one of the guys who'd been running the fitness sessions. Oh, uh, he wow. went down on day three. We weren't even that high, but he'd, you know, he'd gone off too hard on, on, on that day. Um, and, and that was a bit of a warning for everyone. So we were pretty lucky. We only had one other guy struggle. Um, and that was quite late in the piece. He arrived at Gorak Chef, our final um, location, a day behind everyone else. But, um, but yeah, we, we were pretty lucky. But, I mean, it was only on one of the days. We, we had guys being stretched off the mountain, you know, guys being carried past us. I think that sort of woke everyone up a little bit. So this, the you know, severity of, of altitude thing, it's a real thing. It can cause, you know, you know, it can kill people. So, yeah. um, you know, I hope, thankfully we weren't really in any danger of that. But I think just seeing people being carried off, you know, fit, healthy guys who were climbing, 
um, being carried off with something as, as what we thought was as mild as altitude sickness. Like, mm. Yeah, a bit of a wake-up call, that one. So it, it's very difficult to prepare. Like, you can get fit, um, but that won't help you from altitude sickness. The the way to do it is actually just to be the tortoise, you know, slow and steady. Yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned doing university and working for travel companies, etc. What was it that took you to Japan? And um, was working in cricket something that you'd always sort of had aspirations to do when, when you're back in your uni days and, and thinking about where life would take you? So early on, I, I very much wanted to be a sports journalist. Um, that was kind of my goal. Um, even when I was 16, I went and did a work experience placement in a couple of the major newspapers in England. Yep. Um, and I wasn't really sure how to go about getting into that. Um, I did a history degree, which probably wasn't the smartest move, but it gave me an opportunity to write about historical sporting events, which was kind of just an excuse. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and then I, um, when I graduated, I, I went traveling. I went to Australia and watched the Rugby World Cup in 2003. Um, so just, I got my traveling out of the way. And when I came back from that, I was like, right, I want to work in either sport or travel. And, um, you know, with no sort of sporty background as such, it was very difficult to break into it. I didn't really know how to do it or what I could do. Um, it's funny, you look around now, you see all the different jobs that there are. You know, it, it actually would have been relatively straightforward if, you know, the internet had existed a bit more in 2003. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but you don't really know what kind of options there are. So I ended up working in travel. Um, and I did 10 years in travel. I did seven years at Flight Center and three years at Wild Frontiers. And I went and did a, um, I, I kind of got a bit of a, an itch. I, I traveled a lot by the time I was into my early 30s and I hadn't seen very much of the UK. So I decided to walk the length of the River Thames in seven days, which um, averaged out as a marathon every day. So it's about 42 kilometers a day. Oh, wow. Um, and so I did that and it gave me a lot of time. I did it on my own. People came and joined me for, for sections, but it gave me a lot of time on my own. I did it all self-supported, so I was, um, you know, camping, or, or I actually slept at a cricket pavilion one night. Um, got the guys <laughs> coming to open up, the, open up the cricket ground, and just slept in the changing room. Oh, that's so um, good. That's kind, of, that's kind of eerie, but um, yeah, I, I a lot of self-reflection on that, and I kind of came back to it and said, well, you know, when I finished uni, I, I had this whole thing about working in sport or travel. I've done ten years in travel. Now let's have a crack at getting into the sports industry, and I and I went and looked at everything I could find. Um, I used every contact I'd made over the years um, to try and dig some kind of opportunity out. Um, I applied for a host of things, and funnily enough, the very first job I applied for was this one in Japan. Mm. Um, at the time, um, the deadline for the job had actually passed. I would regularly go on to the ITC website, the ECB website, just to see what opportunities there were, and, and this one was there on the ITC website. The, the deadline was the day before, um, so I emailed... Um, the, the name that was on there, which is now Kimiaji, and just said, look, are you still recruiting for this? And I know the deadline was yesterday, but I'm interested. And said, well, if you get your CV in tomorrow, um, we'll have a look at it. So I quickly fired something off. And then um, that was like on the Monday or Tuesday. And by the Thursday, I had a first interview. And the following Thursday, I had a second interview. And I didn't hear anything for three weeks. Um, and it's one of those random stories, actually, where I, I sent a follow-up after a couple of weeks. And I got an email back saying that we're still considering you're still in the frame. Um, so I was like, okay, cool. And I kind of, another week went by, I hadn't heard anything. And actually, I was on the trip with Wild Frontiers. I was in Iraqi Kurdistan. And I'd been out into the, the you know, the wild, basically, for three days. It's a zero connection to the outside world, no internet or anything. Yeah. And I remember getting back to my hotel and opening up my emails. And I had, you know, 
40, 50 odd emails to scroll through. This is my personal email account. Um, it doesn't usually get that much traffic. It was going through a lot of things from back home. And um, I, I saw the email from Miyagi-san in the list of emails. And I didn't go straight to it because I just figured it was, you know, letting me down gently and that was it. So yeah. I read through all the other emails first. And, and, you know, when you're reading through your emails, you delete one, the next one just pops in. You're not sure what it is. It's going to pop in. Yeah. So in it pops suddenly and it's offering me the job. And I was like, oh, crikey, okay. Um, it was a weird place to be to, to get a job offer. Um, so I had to finish that trip. Um, I went back and said, look, I'm currently, you know, out in the sticks. Um, <laughs> give, me, give, me, give me a few days. And I, I got back to England, I think. I must have been like a Tuesday or Wednesday. I got back to England on the Saturday. I spent all day Sunday speaking to my family and weighing up whether or not I was to do this move. As it happened, I, I got a friend out here who came here straight after university in 2002. I came to visit him in 2012. So I'd been to Japan just a couple of years earlier. Yeah. Um, in fact, just 18 months earlier. And so I had some idea of what the place was like. And, and having a friend out here who was separate to the cricket world um, ha- was a huge benefit. It helped me settle it. You, you know, when you, when you come to a new country and you're in a new job, and the only people you know are the people in the job, yeah. you need a, an outlet. So having a friend here really helped. Um, and yeah, I decided to take the plunge. It was a chance to get into working in cricket. Um, the job at the time was to um, report directly to the ICC on a junior participation program. Yeah. So they had put out uh, to tender to all the members, all the associate members, the opportunity to get some extra funding um, to pilot this participation program. And the USA and Canada got it, and Japan got it. Um, so there was one guy over in the US um, managing those two, and then and it was me in Japan. And so over I came, I did that for the first couple of years, but it was kind of chaotic. The moment I arrived, you know, as a cricket fan, you'll remember sort of January, February 2014 and um, was when the big three takeover happened in England, mm. Australia, and India decided they were going to take over the world of cricket and screw everyone else, basically. Um, so I was immediately under the pump because the word that was coming was there'd be less money for the associates, that the project that was funding my role was immediately going to be questioned. Um, I was kind of lucky in that I arrived in the January and the season didn't start till April. They made the decision on whether or not to renew for a second year in the May. That's what the board meeting was. Mm. So I had no opportunity to do anything uh, at that point. They kind of had to give me a second year, um, which they did. Um, so that gave me a bit more security. I had sort of, by, by the time May came around, I had sort of, you know, 20 months ahead of me to, to try and make an impact. And, and we established the Cricket Blast program um, that had you know, reasonably good numbers in those first two years. And then at the end of that, the funding was withdrawn um, by the ICC. And at that stage, um, Miyagi-san offered me a, a new role, which is what I'm doing now as head of cricket operations. And I've been doing that for the last eight years. And that's sort of overseeing all the cricket in Japan, basically. Um, yeah. As well as sort of, it's nice that the role didn't exist before and I've been able to sort of shape it and, and move things in the direction that, that I can't see if there's a certain project that I think needs, or a certain area of the game that needs improving, then I can do that. And actually COVID was quite a useful time for that because it allowed us to take stock over a number of months and review a lot of different things. And out of that, we created um, disciplinary committee and an umpire's panel and, you know, just making things a bit better. Um, yeah, which uh, you know, there's always new initiatives, but sometimes you look at what you already have and just try and improve it as well. 
And, and what's the what's the appetite for cricket like in Japan? Like, where does it sit uh, in terms of, of of popularity against other other activities that people people spend their time doing? Yeah, I think it's developing nicely. Um, I mean, there's always been cricket was established in Japan, sort of in the in the 1980s, um, and you know it, the universities played a lot in the early days. Um, that those that competition still exists. It's in a slightly different form now, but yeah. um, I think as particularly in the last few years and, and with the recent news about the Olympics, um, there's been more and more curiosity about it. The playing numbers now are sort of around the 5,000 mark. I think they're around 3,000 when I arrived. Yeah. Um, that they did have a setback during the pandemic, um, so we're still coming out of that. But you know, to have sort of 5,000 registered players, I mean, you know, if I was to tell you that our Japan Cup competition which is um, a regional T20 competition. I think it had 64 teams this year. Oh, wow. So you know, that, that's quite a lot. Um, that's just senior men's. Because an under-15 league and under-19 league, but the women's league, and the uni leagues. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a lot going on. Um, our main 40-over competition has three divisions with, um, I think, 32 teams in it across the... About 30 teams, I think, across the... Um, across the three divisions. So, yeah, there's a lot of cricket happening. Now, yes, we have to admit that part of that is um, from players overseas, you know, as yep. the demographics have changed in Japan quite a lot in the last sort of, 10, 15 years. They used to be mainly um, people from sort of China, Korea, living here. They were the ones who, who came over. But as relations have soured um, diplomatically with those countries, the, um, the labor force has been coming in from India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Nepal, Bangladesh. So, from a cricket perspective, that's pretty handy. Um, those guys are the ones working in, in IT, they're working in automotion, um, automotive industry. So, you know, the um, the cricket infrastructure has been boosted by that. Um, yeah. So although the, you know, we're still working hard to keep the, the local players playing, and there are still a lot of Japanese players playing the game, um, you know, our national team is, you know, 90% Japanese passport holders. Um, yep. So, you know, we've been very, and, and that's even, even that's quite recent. Up until very recently, it was 100% um, Japanese passport holders. So we do very much try and um, focus on our um, junior programs. Certainly, you know, the program I came over here 10 years ago to install is still running, um, the Cricket Blast program, and that is still producing players. It doesn't produce sort of sways and sways of players. It's not the um, mass participation program that we hoped it would be, but it is producing cricketers. Yeah. producing players who are staying in the game. Um, and that's kind of the main mission that we have. You know, the JCA vision is to, um, you know, share joy and, and, and enrich lives um, through mm. the game of cricket. And so for us, you know, giving people the opportunity to represent Japan, to travel, to meet people of different cultures, you know, that's enriching people's lives um, because Japan as a nation is quite, you know, historically a closed off place, quite an isolated set of islands that, you know, from... 1650 to 1850 didn't mix with the outside world at all. It's completely closed borders. Um, and so for us, the chance to show what different cultures exist and what they're like and, and to help um, people integrate into society, you know, there's a huge Indian population growing in Tokyo and, mm. you know, they all want to play cricket. And if they are able to make Japanese friends uh, pick up the language through playing on the same field, it's, you know, it makes for a more harmonious. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, it, 
you you guys also provide opportunities for overseas clubs who want to go and have a cultural experience to go to Japan and play some cricket. You you, you can facilitate that happening. We do. We do. It's something we're doing a little bit less, to be honest. Um, we're, we're always happy for people to come, and we're always happy for people to come and play our local clubs. Yep. It's something that, that me personally, I'm probably a little bit less willing to put all my time into yeah. now because <laughs> yep. the, the international calendar is pretty, pretty, um, pretty full on. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but yeah, we had, a, we had a touring team over really recently, actually, from, from the UK. They, they shall remain nameless. They, they weren't from the UK. They were partly from the UK and partly from Australia. And um, it, it, as usually happens, they managed to get themselves into a bit of trouble in, in, in Tokyo nightclub. Um, oh, dear. On a Wednesday. <laughs> um, and, you know, and, and we get the phone call um, because, yeah. you know, they're here for cricket and it's bizarre. You know, you couldn't imagine, could you, like, you know, a group of guys turn up to Australia for, for a cricket tour and they, they get into trouble in a bar and someone calls Cricket Australia and the CEOs have to deal with it. <laughs> that is the case here. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that is the case in Japan. So, you know, we, we, we love having people over. Um, it, it provides opportunities. Um and, you know, it gets to show off Japan cricket a bit. Um, but I think we're going to be moving more towards directing people to the clubs. Um, yep. And that way, you know, we, we want people to come and, and see the sun and the national cricket ground. But the challenge is, what, what's actually good is people come with a big enough group where they, if they want to play each other on a, on a Wednesday at our ground, we're all for that. Yeah. It's difficult for us to find opposition Monday to Friday um, because, you know, Japan's a very busy work Yeah, culture. Um, yeah, yeah. There's not a lot. Of, there's not a lot of holidays. You know, the players that we have in our programs, they use all their holidays to go and play tournaments. Um, so it's something that we do want to encourage people to come and use the ground and, and, and to see the place. But um, sourcing opposition is, is a bit more tricky. That being said, um, that's really just speaking from the Sano perspective. We have the ground in Kaizuka down in Osaka. Yeah, they're they're always pretty pretty happy to host. Um, and there's more grounds around, and there's ground in Chiba, there's ground up in Sendai. They're, they're always interested in hosting as well. So, you know, there are opportunities. It's just, um, and we're well, keen to welcome people, um, but it might be something that we're looking to do more through sort of travel agents and, and a more sort of traditional route rather than kind of taking it all on board ourselves. Yeah, for sure. And now you, you mentioned the schedule. Um, a, a great thing when the schedule's packed as a result of good performances. What, what have been, what, what's probably been your most recent highlight uh, in terms of achievement on the field and, and what's something that Japan cricket have really got their eye on down the track in terms of uh, w- what you're working towards going forward? Yeah, there's a couple. Um, I mean, when I arrived uh, back in 2014, I, wasn't, I didn't have anything to do with the national team in the first two years. Um, but um, in 2016 or 20, late 2015, when the job changed, I started getting a bit more involved in that. And even you know, looking back to those early tournaments that, that were taking place, the Japan men's team, you know, weren't really that competitive in the East Asia Pacific region. Um, we were a long way behind Papua New Guinea, Vanuatu, even um, the Pacific Islanders, Fiji and Samoa, were, were quite far ahead of us at that time. Um, but looking at the most recent tournaments. In October last year, we won the sub-regional qualifier when we beat um, Korea and Indonesia to go through to the regional final, which we had this year. Yep. So we travelled to Papua New Guinea and we beat Vanuatu for the first time in I don't know how long. Um, information on our website somewhere, but but a long time. Um, 
And we finished second in that competition behind Papua New Guinea. And, you know, the winner of that competition goes directly to the T20 World Cup. Yeah, so yeah. All, all of a sudden, you're looking at it and thinking, all right, okay, well, yeah, okay, we lost Papua New Guinea twice, but we didn't lose heavily. We competed at times, and you know, they're a professional outfit. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's not impossible to think that in two to four years, we could be, you know, making the, the big dance. Um, mm. it, it's something that we're aware Papua New Guinea have had a golden generation of players come through. Our players are very young, so we feel that we're on an upward curve and that perhaps some of the other teams in the region are plateauing a little bit. And that's been shown um, by the other great area of success this year, which is our under-19 team. Now, we travelled to Darwin for the regional World Cup qualifiers. Now, the under-19 World Cup is a 16-team tournament. Um, the 11 full members uh, qualify automatically. Yep. Then you get one qualifier from uh, the Americas, Africa, Asia, uh, EAP and Europe. So all we have to do is win our region. Now, unfortunately, um, due to the pandemic, New Zealand didn't go to the previous World Cup. Um, oh, and yeah. as, as a result of that, um, their spot was given to someone else. They, they have to qualify again, um, which meant they came into our region this time. Um, now, obviously, New Zealand are a far better resource and a far um, you know, superior creating power than, than any of the other EAP teams and they duly turned up and, and won the event um, So and we kind of, everyone kind of knew they would everyone kind of knew they were playing second place in that tournament Yeah. Um, but we played them in the opening match um, and we had them 126 I think oh wow um, this is 50 over cricket yeah 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 we had them 126 and they got away from the end they made I think they made 299 in the end um, and then we were 80 for 2 in the chase before things fell away so, you know, we competed in that game. And then we went on and we won the rest of the matches, including beating Papua New Guinea, which was the first time our under-19 team had ever beaten them. Um, and we beat them relatively comfortably. Um, so our under-19 team, finishing second in that, in any normal year, that, that team would have gone off to an under-19 World Cup, um, which would have been, you know, the second time we'd achieved that because we went to a World Cup in 2020. Um, yeah. We, we didn't beat Papua New Guinea, but they had to um, forfeit their final game. Um, there's a whole other story there, which I'll, I'll leave you to find out about yourself, perhaps. Yep. Um, but um, the the opportunity to do that really is what put Japan cricket on the map. And for us, it was a huge highlight. Um, and we're very keen to, to get back there and show that we deserve a place there. Because that 2019-2020 qualification was um, two years early, basically. We put together a plan to get the under-19 team to the World Cup in 2022. Um, and we haven't played in any under-19 regional qualifiers since 2011 so to turn up um, and and win that competition was incredibly satisfying um, and it showed that there's depth coming through and it goes back to the cricket blast program that I was talking about 11 of the 14 players that we picked in that squad had come through the cricket blast program oh, there you go. Thing. so you know we were producing cricket players and you know those guys went off to South Africa and you know they had a, a difficult time in South Africa at the World Cup as we all expected but what was really the most painful thing was that the pandemic hit and the place at the World Cup in two years' time, in 2022, was given to Papua New Guinea. Um, and we didn't get to go as defending champions. And that's definitely a, a sore spot, um, which yeah. made the win this year against Papua New Guinea all the more special. It really showed that we have a pathway for junior cricketers to develop, to show what they can do, and to um, you know achieve things. So 
seeing that team this year do that was really exciting. And it then just got even better. Um, this year, we've joined the Asia Cricket Council Pathways. We haven't actually got membership of the Asia Cricket Council itself yet. We're still waiting on that, but they have included us in their pathway competitions. And so the under-19 team went to the Asia Cup qualifier, which was held in Malaysia in October. And we wanted to go and, and just sort of show people what we can do. Because there are often noises that the EAP region is a bit weaker than some of the other regions. And should yeah. they therefore get a spot at, at the World Cup um, when Asia have got such a strong region? Um, so we wanted to go and just show people that, you know, we're not a pushover, that we, the under-19 team, just because we're playing the EAP region, we're still a good team. So we went in the first match to beat the host, Malaysia, which was pleasing. Um, we beat Indonesia, who we'd already played in Darwin, um, and from our region anyway. And then we beat um, Hong Kong, which was fantastic and, then that, and a bit of a surprise. So that yeah. put us into the semi-finals. Um, we we had a difficult day against Nepal. It was a rain fight match and, and things went went bad. Um, and that, that, in a way, that was good for us. It showed that there is still a gap between us and the top teams. Nepal were easily the favourites for the tournament anyway. Mm. But then the top three teams would qualify for the Asia Cup. Um, so the third, fourth place playoff that becomes more important than the final. And in that game, we're up against Singapore, um, and we beat them too. So the boys will be off next week. They fly. I'm currently sat in the room surrounded by all their gear. Um, uh. <laughs> they'll fly to Dubai. Um, yeah, to play in an eight-team tournament um, with, you know, India, Pakistan. Um, who are the other teams? India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Nepal are in one group. Mm-hmm. And we're in the group with Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, and the UAE. So, um, you know, a chance to play against four member nations and it's fantastic and it shows that our junior programs are producing talented players who can compete certainly with the best um, associate members in Asia. Yeah. Um, so that hopefully stands us in really good set and I mentioned already you know that our men's national team is already young and when we were playing in Darwin and, and going well in that tournament a lot of people were asking us oh, how many of these under 19 players are in your full men's team and the answer was none and people were like oh, wow okay your men's team must be going okay and, and, and it is so, yeah. yeah, it's an exciting time. And it's really, um, for me, that's, that's where a lot of the, the job satisfaction comes from when you see these, these players. And we do have more and more players um, who are, are living overseas now. Um, so certainly in my early days, it was all about producing um, Japanese talent locally. And, and we are still really driving hard to do that. But we have kind of had to accept that if we get one or two um, outstanding talents come through, then that's a win. Um, but there are, as the Japan team has gained a higher profile, we are gaining more people of Japanese heritage contacting us saying that they're interested in being part of our programs. And ultimately, players who have come through a development program in England or Australia or, or anywhere of, of that nature who have Japanese um, heritage, they're going to play cricket at yeah. a higher level throughout their junior time. So they're going to be more developed than the players that we have. You know, we're trying to catch that up. Um, but it's been incredibly satisfying to see these guys and girls um, really want to connect with their Japanese heritage and using cricket to do that. Um, and that's such, for me, a, a really rewarding thing to see players um, who might have been born in Japan, say, and then left when they were sort of five, six years old. That, that seems to be quite a common theme. Um, and they go and they go back to their, um, their second country and, and they grow up there and they learn their cricket there. But they get sort of 17, 18, 19, they're like, you know, I want to explore more and learn more about my Japanese heritage. And a lot of the times they've come over here for family holidays, you know, once a year or whatever. Um, 
but but very much just doing what their parents want to do. And now at, at 18, 19, 20, they, they want to do what they want to do. And to be able to come and play cricket, they immediately get to meet a whole new um, set of people. They, they get to make those friendships mm. with local Japanese people and they, they, they get some um, speaking the language more and like I say, reconnecting with their, uh, their Japanese heritage. And that's something that we're, we're really, really proud of. And it's uh, an added bonus that it's helping our cricket programs and our cricket teams perform. But these guys um, and girls, we've got uh, Rayo Sakurano, the men's vice captain now. He's just completing his second year working with us. Yep. And we've just recruited uh, Elena Kasuda, who's grown up in Queensland. Rayo came through New Zealand. Rayo's a public example. He was born in Japan, went back to New Zealand when he was five, six years old and was come back at 22 to come and work for us. Elena was born in Australia, raised in Australia, but um, she's come to work for us now. Her Japanese is already really good. She's, the girls are a bit better than the boys, I think, keeping up their language skills. <laughs> work for us as, a, as a women's development officer, and she's going to help drive our female participation. So, you know, these these kids are, um, well, they're not kids anymore, but these young adults are, um, you know, really keen to give something back to cooking in Japan and to, to drive the sport forward here because they know that there is potential. Um, our captain, Kendall uh, Kadawaki Fleming, he's um, as passionate and driven as anyone. He was another one. He was born here down in Fukuoka and he lived here until he was six, seven, eight years old before going back to Queensland. And, you know, he's taking time out of work at the moment to try and um, help Japan um, develop as a cricketing nation. And, you know, it shows the commitment that these people have. It's great. Oh, 100%. Hundred percent, and you, you you mentioned Olympics in passing. What what's the what's the chatter around Olympic games, and uh, what would that mean uh, for a nation like Japan? Yeah, it's, it's exciting. I mean, it's one of those things that um, we have worked very hard to get cricket established in a way that doesn't depend on Olympic inclusion. There are some sports, particularly in in Japan, and in and probably around the world that without the Olympics they'd almost cease to exist you know mm. they they wouldn't get any financing and they'd they'd really struggle so we never want to be in that position um, so instead getting into the Olympics is it represents a fantastic opportunity for us to reach a new audience so that's the main thing people will take people in Japan will take cricket a lot more seriously now that it is in LA 28 like it was it was news here um, yeah you know we had a whole press conference done at the ground um, and, and people were interested. And now we've got journalists contacting us saying, look, it's my job. Now that cricket's an Olympic sport, it's my job to report on cricket. So, okay, great. So we're going to get a lot more coverage, a lot more eyeballs will hopefully mean a lot more participants. Um, and with that comes, you know, the funding it releases from the Japan Olympic uh, Committee. Mm. So, you know, we don't, we don't know quite how much that's going to be yet and how it's going to work. We had an initial meeting with them last week, actually, myself and, and the Edison went down to Tokyo and had a chat. And, and you know, it's, there's a few things we need to, to do first. Um, but hopefully from early next year we might see um, you know, the benefits of that starting to rub off. Of course, at the moment, cricket is only in for LA 28. Um, yeah. So at the moment, it's been made a one-off Olympic sport. So we need uh, your mates over in Australia, over in Brisbane, to make sure it stays in 2032, which I'm sure they will. Yeah. Um, and then beyond that, you know, there's rumours that the next 2036 Olympics could potentially be in India. Yeah, um, okay. Yep. So suddenly, if, 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 if cricket gets three Olympic cycles, that's, you know, the next thing is to get cricket actually into the Olympics as a permanent sport. And once that's done, that is when there could be significant change. And that's probably still a little way off. Yep. But if we get three Olympic Games worth of cricket, I mean, by 2036, I'm going to be an old man. So um, <laughs> someone else's problem. But, um, 
you know, it's uh, it's something that I hope um, will have a lasting impact on the game here. Certainly, it's um, helping us to speak with new partners um, and our, our current partners, particularly uh, MKI. There are a, a company that a Japanese company we've been working with for a number of years. They've been sponsoring our women's team for a long time, and um, they've really, you know, we we call them a partner rather than a sponsor. They they go a lot. They go beyond what a normal sponsor do. They don't just give us money. They really engage with us, yeah, um, and really want to help us benefit. They're even talking about building an indoor net um, facility in their office. <laughs> oh, how good! We'll, we'll see. If, we'll see if that actually happens. But it's um, something that that was kind of talked about in, in, uh, in one of the one of the conversations. You know, they give you an idea of their level of commitment. Um, yeah. So those kind of partnerships are, are vital for us, and, and Olympic inclusion just just gets more people. You know, people are coming to us now, and that's kind of the biggest change that that we've found. Is for years and years and years we've been going out, knocking on doors, you know, trying to ask people to get involved. And now people are actually contacting us, saying, "Yeah, how can we, how can we get involved in cricket?" So that's um, that 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 shift is it's exciting and pleasing. Oh, very exciting indeed. Well, I really enjoyed hearing the story. Uh, and the little insights into into how how things have evolved in your time in Japan. Before we let you go, Alan, we need to, to ask the hardest hitting question in world podcasts today, and 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 this is to find out from you who are the three people. If you could have a dream cricket net session, who are the three people that you're going to be inviting uh, to the nets? Yeah. That's a toughie, Matt. I mean, first of all, I, can start, I don't really dream about net sessions. Um, <laughs> they're uh, more, more of something to be endured when, from a player of my ability. But, um, but yeah, I did have some thoughts about this. And I, I mean, assuming that I can go for a, for a drink with these guys afterwards, that's um, definitely part of it. Yeah, oh, yeah, um, absolutely. The first, name, the first name that came to mind, it, it would obviously be the, the late, great Shane Warne. Um, yeah. So I think in this net session, I'm not playing. I'm going to stand an umpire. Okay. okay? Yeah. So I want to I want to stand at the at the bowler's end and just watch Warney bowl, um, and listen to his chirp. That would be, I think that would be a, a fun way to spend the net session. Um, alongside him to to do the uh, the pace bowling stock, uh, I'd like to have Kurt the Ambrose. He was one of my oh, favourite bowlers growing up. Yes. Um, I just think so, like so intimidating. Um, yeah. And. Just on his day, absolute lightning. Um, so I'd like to stand and and just watch him. I'd probably take a few steps back and just watch that delivery stride and watch him, you know, power that ball down there. I think that would be be pretty fun to, to watch. And and because I'm an Englishman, I, I've got to have an Englishman batting. I think. Um, and although there've been a lot of uh, great players throughout the history of English cricket, I think we do have to acknowledge and appreciate when we've got greatness among us. And I think Joe Root is probably going to end up as the finest. English batter of all time, um, so I think I'd put Joe in there. He's, you know, he never. I don't think he ever played against Warney in Test cricket. Uh, certainly didn't play against Gertie Ambrose. Um, but he's a great player of spin, um, so I'd like to, to watch that battle. And uh, and Joe's not shy of a word or two either. So I think him and Warney going at each other might be quite entertaining. So, so yeah, I think that'd be my three: Joe Root, Shane Warney, Gertie Ambrose. Oh, that sounds absolutely brilliant. Well, th- thanks so much for your time, Alan. I, I really enjoyed hearing your story, the Japanese cricket story. Uh, don't forget, everyone, get yourself a copy of the book to read more about uh, what, what happened up there on... on cricket on, on Everest, yeah. Cricket on Everest. Uh, and keep keep up 
with the mission of Japan Cricket, share joy and enrich lives. I really do like that as a, a, a core value and a, a core mission of, of Japan Cricket and uh, looking forward to seeing uh, things to continue to progress in Japan. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Just before I go, I guess I should um, point everyone in the direction of the Japan Cricket Socials. Um, our Instagram page is pretty active. That's where you can go to find out all the information about our national teams. Um, Instagram is very much our um, channel for, for promoting our national team activities. Um, Facebook is where you'll find most of our club activities. Um, you know, the, the domestic achievements, you can find things there. If you're planning on moving to Japan and want to get a game, um, you'll find out a lot about which clubs are doing what through our Facebook page. Twitter does everything. Well, I should call it X, shouldn't I? But, yeah. Um, <laughs> X marks the spot. It, it's still Twitter, let's face it. It's still Twitter. Um, and, uh, and, our, and our website, cricket.or.jp, um, is, is full of all the news. And although it's the end of the season, um, come next year, there will be a host of uh, content on our YouTube channel as well. So don't subscribe to that too if you want to see what Japan Cricket looks like. Yeah, fantastic. We'll make sure we put all of those links in the show notes. And um, thanks again, Alan, for joining us on the Cricket Library podcast. My pleasure, Matt. Thanks for the interest and, uh, and support. Thank you. A massive thanks to Alan Kerr for joining us on this edition of the Cricket Library podcast and a massive thanks to you, our loyal listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you are new to the podcast, make sure you go and have a look at the back catalogue. David Hussey, a recent guest on the program and many, many more in the back catalogue for you to have a listen to. And, of course, if you liked what you heard today, please hit that subscribe button. Make sure you check out Japan Cricket on the internet. We'll put all of the relevant links into the show notes and get behind them. Support Japan Cricket, and we look forward to seeing them progress on the world stage. This has been Matt Ellis for the Cricket Library podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. I look forward to your company again next time. Bye for now.